Hello everybody, my name is Benjamin Kitchings. This is the History Voyager, a podcast about history. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. I wanted to say today, and I've been wanting to say this for a while, but I've wanted to say for a while is that it's becoming apparent to me that there's a level of realization that people get to with pandemics, especially pandemics in what you might want to say is the modern age. I mean, if you look at, say, 1918, depending on how far you've gotten in my podcast, you might be thinking that 1918 isn't quite as modern as you once thought it was. Or you might be thinking, man, it's modern, but not in quite the way I hoped it was. But the one thing I did want to say, and I wanted to say this on this podcast right here right now, is that it's becoming apparent to me that there's this slow realization that people get with pandemics where they start to realize that something is happening, but they don't quite know. Like, they're learning that the world doesn't quite fit in the way that they were taught. And the thing I've noticed is I'm noticing the on the ground reality of these people who are realizing, well, actually COVID-19, you know, yes, it can kill you, but what it can do really more than that is damage you. I see a lot more cautious people And the thing I'm also noticing in the research for the Spanish flu is the basic thing about any sort of a pandemic is that it is a fact, it is essentially a product of basically technology. You know, the the natural condition is not to live in such a tight knit area that pandemics or communicable diseases actually could crop up. And I think one of the things we're seeing is that, say, for example, with COVID-19, is that you have these people who were thinking that their distance could save them. And in fact, it can save a lot of people. But you have to be smart about it. And you also have to exist in a world, and this is, I think, the rub. You have to exist in a world where the powers that be essentially want people to stay alive first and foremost. I think it's fair to say that most people, uh, there's like a a cycle of understanding that people go through with pandemics where they begin to see the shape of the pandemic. Say, for example, with the Spanish flu, where that was a slower process because you didn't have readily available information and you certainly didn't have readily available information everywhere. Well, like, say, for example, with COVID-19, in the places where you have high-speed internet, as well as the idea to use the high-speed internet to gather information, people are starting to learn, for example, that COVID-19 is not the flu. That actually what we were doing, which is essentially we were selectively closing things and not even closing them all the way, might have worked for something analogous to a flu. 
But the fact is, this is not the flu. If you examine, for example, the, I guess, the narrative, even the modern-day narrative behind the Spanish flu, what you notice is like a realization on the part of people where they begin to understand that the Spanish flu actually was very, very deadly. And honestly, they really kind of thought of it as quite mysterious. But also, underneath of that, what you also don't really get a sense of unless you read behind the lines, or between the lines, I should say, is you get a sense that there was a huge number of people who really never understood it as a disease that they needed to look out for, which is really strange to think about for us because the more research I do into the Spanish flu, the more research leads me to believe that actually a lot of us are here today because we had at least one ancestor who essentially decided to heed Spanish flu warnings or just by luck, honestly, uh, just wasn't where the Spanish flu was. And a lot of that we're now figuring out actually was more luck than anything else. And we're figuring that out, as I've said, not just from the research and the expanded definitions of what the flu is, but also because right now we happen to be going through COVID-19 and enough of us now are starting to get stories and hear about people that have had this disease that realize that a lot of catching a disease or not deals almost exclusively with luck or lack of same. And I think also the other thing that I'm learning as I think about the Spanish flu is that all of the research and all of the historiography written about the Spanish flu is written in the vein of, say, basically the intellectual as the hero, to to use a trope from Hollywood. Um, but essentially, we now realize that that's not really the case. Well, it is the case, but it's not really the case for a lot of people. And what I mean by that is... One of the frustrating things to me, both in my, you know, as I look at the world around me and also as I look at, say, the the research having to do with the Spanish flu, is that it's not written from the perspective of common everyday people. It's written from the perspective of highly placed doctors and also a lot of those doctors essentially were in the military because that's where America's public health infrastructure was both physically and as a priority, which means, which I mean to say essentially is this. A lot of your younger doctors and your more able doctors were certainly in Europe at the time dealing with World War One, And so there was a lot of research done by Americans on Europeans, and there was a lot of research done by Americans on Americans in American cities. But in a lot of cases in the American countryside, there was essentially it was a silent pandemic. And one of the things that specifically Alfred Crosby deals with is he deals with the fact that why is the Spanish flu a forgotten, essentially a forgotten plague? 
And the reason he comes up with, or one of the main reasons he comes up with, I think, is that essentially, you know, after 1918, so after the early 20s, there was a gigantic movement from the country, from the countryside into the city. And basically historians today, we call that what we call the Billy Migration, which essentially means that hillbillies migrated to the urban centers. Or in some cases, the urban center basically sprawled out to them. And in doing that, it plugged them into a, a, essentially a, a network of knowledge and technology and things, which we became used to, or we became, we became used to the idea that people were used to it. But I think what I'm noticing, and what a lot of other people are noticing about COVID-19, is that not everybody knows the same stuff. Not everybody thinks the same way about the same stuff. And actually, one of the things I really want to do with my podcast is actually examine uh, people, the people of 2020, to see what they're doing, to see how they're doing. Because one of the dangers, I think, and I think this is a big danger, one of the dangers we have, because it's sane and intelligent to to be isolated from each other, is to think that we're all going through the pandemic in the same way. And I can just tell, based on my friends, I can just tell that's not accurate. I have friends that are going through the pandemic in very terrible ways, and I have other friends that, for whom work included, their life just doesn't really change all that much. And I'm just sort of thinking it's a disservice of me doing this podcast to not show people that this is the human condition in 2020 in America. So that's one of the things I'm going to do. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I actually am doing. But another thing that I just really kind of wonder about as I look back on the 1918 um, historiography is when you look at the 1918 historiography, the thing that you notice, because you're looking at people who interfaced in some way with authority or academia in the early part of the 20th century, is the thing you notice is you start to get a certain idea of that all people thought this way. And when it becomes apparent, I mean, look at the pandemic we're dealing with. And one of the problems we're dealing with is you know, not everybody thinks the same way about the same sort of stuff. And, you know, you want to think that that's a new phenomenon. But I'm here to tell you as somebody who studied history that it's really not a new phenomenon at all. And so I, I kind of want to deal with that as well. And I think that one of the problems that our society had with the Spanish flu, essentially... And probably other societies had this problem too. Was that because it was new and because newness just doesn't really deal with traditional ways in a good way. You always see a clash between a new thing and the tradition. That, you know, that sort of happened with the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu 
was thought to be a basically a weapon of war or a, a side effect of telephones or you know or it was a hoax a lot of people thought the spanish flu was a hoax and i think you know we can get caught up into the idea that that we've changed because we can point to ways in which we have changed but in a lot of ways i don't know that a lot of us have i mean not a lot but some of us and i also think that covid-19 hit us at a transitional moment in our society. COVID-19 hit us at a moment where retail was dying anyway, where sort of this reality was trying was starting to hit certainly the younger workers of that they weren't going to be as prosperous as their parents, a lot of people. And some of that is because of automation or whatever, but I think some of it also, honestly, is the idea that, you know, for some bizarre reason, you know, our society essentially decided that the liberal arts theory simply isn't as valuable as it used to be. But I also kind of think that one of the things that's happening um, around, say, the Spanish flu was that you had people that were, they were basically, and some of them, a lot of them didn't really realize this at the time, but they were going to go into an arc where they were going to eventually come off the farm. But the farm was still going on. You still had people on the farm, or you still had people adjacent to a farm, or you still had people that could be self-sustaining in, in literally a very, very, real way in a way that a lot of people today aren't self-sustaining at all when you really think about it um you had people that really could sort of check out or they were checked out but you could check out and you could live on a farm and you could sort of ride this thing out and i don't think a lot of people can do that honestly and i also think that when you add to that, there's sort of this, for some reason, and this is a curious artifact of our time, but for some reason, this virus became political. And I hope I've done enough talking into this podcast to show you that earlier, that probably would not have been the case. That this is totally a a function of our modern day where everything automatically becomes political one way or the other. But maybe it didn't become political before because it wouldn't have had to become political before because it wouldn't have existed. But that's a whole nother thought. But another thing that I think the Spanish flu and COVID-19, one of the big parallels that I see between them is that both of these pandemics, both the Spanish flu and COVID-19, exist in a world where enough of the powers that be simply have not psychologically come into the idea that the new world that is before them is going to happen. Not only is it going to happen, but it is workable. I mean, look, for example... 
there was an example of the Spanish flu where a lot of people died from the Spanish flu simply because of old racist ideas. And what's funny about that, when you really examine why some of these people died from their old racist ideas or from someone else's old racist ideas, what's really, really funny about that is, you know, it's sort of strange to think that there were people that thought black people and white people were different biological beings because there were enough people in the South who would have known that wasn't the case to, to make me wonder if that was just something that they told themselves or was it just something that they didn't really think about human biology that much. And again, I, you know, I don't know that that's a bit of information that's been lost to history. Unfortunately, you can't really go into a time machine now and go back and ask these people. But I, I kind of wish you could. But I guess the other thing is, and you see this over and over again in the Spanish flu, is there were enough people who literally, like the concept of living in a city was so new to them, the concept of not having some other relative do your laundry was so new to them that a lot of especially men, simply didn't do laundry or they were doing laundry for the very first time. And so they had no idea how to do laundry. And that, it's been shown, killed a whole lot of people. And what's interesting is how the people that it killed came to the attention of the medical authorities of the day. The reason it came to the medical authority of the day was these people were at least adjacent to the War Department or to various branches of the service or to prison doctors or whatever. If you were just some laborer that was out on your own and you died of the so-called cold or the so-called knockdown fever, again, these are things that, that we today tend to think um, were actually the Spanish flu. It's really interesting to think how many of those people died who simply escaped authority, uh, you know, the gaze of authority, and therefore did not pass into the sanctified 23 million to 50 million Spanish flu deaths. And, you know, that's something interesting to think about in the day and age of COVID-19. Another big difference between the Spanish flu and COVID-19, at least it's a big difference if you look at the literature around the Spanish flu. So, I mean, who knows really if this is a real difference or not. But one of the big differences between the Spanish flu and COVID-19 is that COVID-19 seems to come, for lack of a better word, wrapped in a severe economic depression. And the Spanish flu, at least if you examine it from the level of the expert level and not from the level of oral history, which essentially is close to us now, um, it doesn't come wrapped around this or wrapped inside of a severe economic downturn. But one of the things that I've been trying to do on the podcast is talk to people about how their life is going uh, during COVID-19. 
And herein is something I want to talk about. One of the major, I guess, problems for historians, for lack of a better way to say it, is that so many people in America, especially so many white people in America, are essentially basically conditioned to think of their problems as something not systemic. So it's not really something you should focus on much. So because you're not focusing on your problems, you're not even really aware enough to talk about your problems to a a stranger, which essentially would be what an interviewer would be for a lot of these people. So, you know, we don't really see in the historical record a lot of people talking about, well, here are some side effects to a lot of my neighbors dying. You know, let me talk in a sophisticated or semi-sophisticated way about the psychological impact of seeing my neighbors dying. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. When I was younger, I was doing this interview and in this community, I was interviewing these people for something else, and it was in North Georgia, and I noticed that people of an age, and at that time that age was elderly, but of an age, they would all sort of talk about how they remember from, say, 1917 to 19, say, early 20s, where their neighbors suddenly died of the cold, or they died of whatever. The point is their neighbors would die of either a stroke or a respiratory condition or things that modern folks would attribute to the Spanish flu. But they never told me that my neighbors died of the Spanish flu. And it wasn't until I started doing this podcast that I realized that that was in fact happening. And one of the reasons that I think that was happening is because people, at least American people, are used to looking at their symptomology not as symptomology. They're used to looking at their symptomology as, I have diarrhea, or I have this, or I have that, and not that this might be the effect of something else. And also, as I've said in the podcast, I, I really think a lot of people today, versus say a lot of people in 1918, a lot of people today came up essentially in a golden age. And they're psychologically, they're used to a happy ending. And some of that could be in the media or some of it could be just how the government would deal with certain crises. And what's amazing to me, especially when I talk to the younger people, is they're not really thinking this is going to end happily. And I think there's a real cognitive um, separation, I guess is a way to say it between how the younger people think of COVID-19 and how some of the older people think of COVID-19. And that's really fascinating and also kind of sad to think about. Another thing you see is the reappraisal of basically urban living. And this is essentially something that goes on a lot during pandemics. For example, there was a cholera epidemic in the latter half of the 19th century in basically in Europe and uh, observers and again were forced to go with much more so not the average person right but these observers would notice that for example 
Paris would lose about 700 people a day just to out-migration from a cholera epidemic. Well, you think about, with COVID-19, you think about how New York City, a lot of New York City is becoming essentially a ghost town. And even then, you, you think about one of the things I've thought about with, say, with the Spanish flu during San Francisco, having the Spanish flu was the observers at the time kept noticing that people were, quote, missing, unquote. And earlier I had attributed those deaths, and undoubtedly there were some deaths. But the other thing that it could have been was people just up and left. One thing that all of my friends who live in basically the city of Atlanta have noticed is they have a lot fewer neighbors now than they did, say, in March or February. So, obviously, people are moving somewhere. Now, again, this might have to do with the massive and terrible economic downturn, which has affected so many people here in 2020. But, you know, be that as it may, people are not living in dense places anymore, or at least right now. And that's a change right there, because so many people before this were thinking we were going to get back to essentially a more urban type of situation. And we're so used to extolling the virtues of urban living, those of us of a certain generation and a certain, I guess, economic strata, that we're having to rethink, basically, I guess, density and why density might not be a good thing. But here again, what hasn't happened with a lot of people, at least down to folk, is the idea that, yes, there's an idea that this is more permanent or more long-lasting than before, but there really isn't yet, I don't think, on the part of a lot of people, sort of a sustainable model for how we come out of it, for how we, for what the new normal looks like. And some people might argue, and I might be one of those people, I might not be, but some of those people might argue, well, how sustainable had the before time gotten before the pandemic? I mean, you had people that were grossly underpaid for the labor they were providing, their employment. And I wonder very seriously how sustainable that was to begin with. And I wonder also if the pandemic is going to cause basically a complete reappraisal of what the value of work is and what work is. I'm almost certain, for example, that it will cause basically an overt reappraisal of what higher education is. Because I think you're going to see, especially the longer this pandemic goes... I think you're going to see people rethink sending students into a higher education setting. But, you know, the Spanish flu certainly caused changes as well. It caused changes in how people raised animals. It caused changes in where people lived in relation to the animals they were raising. And it certainly allowed people to see the need for public health. And I think we will have changes in our society. And by the way, the other change that the Spanish flu caused 
was it caused a generation of people, those young doctors dealing with the Spanish flu, it essentially caused them to have a, a massive rethink about what the world, the industrial world, was doing to human health. I think it's important to understand that pandemics in general, while they're not an overt technological cause, they are certainly an, a side effect of technology and a side effect of density. And one of the things that all the doctors who dealt with the Spanish flu essentially had to deal with at the time, and some reported that this would keep them awake at night, deep into their old age, was that there were so many people that they would inoculate with flu virus who did not get the flu. And that really kind of scared them. It scared them because they didn't actually know what to make of immunity. They didn't actually know what to make of the fact that some of these people were essentially immune to this brand new disease, which actually today even complicates what the Spanish flu was in history as we no understand more about it. For example, there was the case of a, a ship of basically naval prisoners that a whole amount, like a whole huge amount of these naval prisoners, were essentially immune to the Spanish flu. And nobody really understands to this day how they can be immune to something that was so new, especially in light of what's been going on in as far as the research about the Spanish flu in the 2010s, as we understand more and more of how new this disease could actually have been. And over and over again, the one thing that I'm forced to confront or deal with is essentially this counter-historical thought that essentially, if World War I had never happened, would we know about the disease at all? Well, let me give you a more realistic option. If, for example, Woodrow Wilson had not successfully placed America in a European conflict that was over European colonialism, would we know about the Spanish flu at all in this country? Because I'm pretty sure that the Spanish flu would have happened because it was going on in Kansas. But I don't know that it would have gotten to Europe. Now I say that, but then there are places that were not involved in World War I that were hit very, very hard, we think, by the Spanish flu. Places like Tehran, in what is today Iran, uh, was hit very, very hard by the Spanish flu. So, I mean, that's a very interesting counterfactual argument that to think about is given our mores about disease and how we isolated symptoms and how a lot of people were encouraged not to think of a symptom as a symptom, just as a condition, because a lot of people weren't medical, you know, and there was a lot of superstition going on. Would we know of the Spanish flu or would it just be written off as, you know, my neighbor died of the cold, so to say? Okay, I have an announcement to make. The announcement I have to make is essentially that I'm going to be doing some oral histories of how people are getting through the pandemic of 2020 
which may well become the pandemic of 2021. Anyway, so I'm going to be doing some oral histories with those people and to talk with them. And partly because, as I've laid out in this episode, because one of the frustrations that I have in dealing with the Spanish flu is that you're dealing with essentially this population which presented itself to medical authority. Or you're dealing with a population of essentially, as I said, the intellectual as hero. And I want to deal with COVID-19 as far as just maybe as normal a person as I can encounter. Or, you know, average normal folks, so to say. Um, I've already put up some of these oral histories, but I'm going to be doing some more of them. They're going to be on this feed. Anyway, believe it or not, I'm having a pretty good day. And I hope you are too. Take care. See you later. Bye-bye.